Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, and we have some terrific people tonight also, so that should be kind of cool. Um, Kristen Posehn is an artist based in Los Angeles. So sh she has produced numerous c commissioned work all over Europe. She has a PhD in fine art from the Winchester School of Art, Winchester, UK, and did a two-year research and production res residency in the Netherlands. In 2010, she was a visiting tutor at Oxford University. Jonathan Griffin is a writer, art critic, and editor, born and raised in London. He now lives in Los Angeles. He is a contributing editor of Freeze Magazine. Please welcome them both, Jonathan and Kristen. Thank you. Is this on? We're working. Um, thanks to everyone for coming. It's uh, great to be here and to spend a bit of time talking about this amazing project of Kristen's and this incredible book which has come out of it. I don't want to spoil it from the outset, but what you should probably know is that Reclamation is a, a, a book about, amongst other things, uh, documentation and documentary processes. When I was at art college um, many years ago, our, our, our tutors used to say, to us, you can do anything you like as long as you document it. And, and in the 90s, that meant photographing on slide film. Um, but as Kristen proves, um, those media have moved on and the possibilities for documentary have uh, exploded. At the center of this project is a, is a sculpture. Um, you could argue that, that this book is an artwork in itself and, and that all the research around the book is, is also part of the project. But an actual physical artwork um, existed uh, for a short time and uh, is described in the book. And I'm going to um, read Kristen's description of it. 
I caught sight of the arch a block away, isolated in the grass near the corner of the lot. The crumbling brick and stone made it seem old, much older than Almira. It looked like a Roman ruin, a fragment of an aqueduct or an ancient city wall. It made no immediate sense of this city of very sensible things. The arch stood at an angle to the cinema reef, catching the right-hand glance of drivers into the city centre. I rode towards it from the back like a panning camera, watching the yellow and red bricks tower above the weeds in the field to my left until I saw the structure directly from the side, tall and slender, slippery and tantalising. I still couldn't tell what it was made of. When I reached the farthest corner of the lot, I got off my bike locked it against the street lamp and walked into the field. My feet sank in the, in the sand and wet grass. I couldn't find a sign or explanation. The arch was two stories high. It dwarfed me. From the front, the right side and top appeared to be crumbling as if this entrance was all that remained of a much larger structure. There was a holy shit aspect to the situation. I suddenly became aware of how far I'd come. I was alone with the arch in the flat expanse of the field. I felt destabilized, cut off from the city, and conspicuously visible. Then it gave up one of its tricks. The structure played a flatness game. It appeared to be made of bricks, mortar, and masonry. But as I got closer, I saw that the surface was smooth and textureless. Sections which appeared to be crumbling had been cut out. The structure had multiple elements of sculptural relief, each a subtle surprise, making it more than a single planar surface, more than a facade. The faux masonry on the front popped out a hand's width from the faux bricks. The side wall sat back 20 centimetres from the front wall. The more I looked, the more dimension it offered. It was a peculiar sculpture in the round, a sculpture of a building. As I came even closer, it became slightly repellent, don't classical ruins grow wildflowers in their cracks? The arch was brand new, a virtual ruin. Photographs had been printed onto large sheets of vinyl and tiled across every square centimetre. It was a monstrous, overgrown photograph of a building. The arch drew me in with, an, with its exoticism and hyperabundance of detail, simultaneously resisting my advance, pushing back with its overwhelming plastic newness. I knew it wasn't made of bricks, and yet it looked so much like bricks that my hand shot straight out of its own volition. The surface felt smooth, warm from the sun. I slid my hand across its skin, trying to figure out how it was made. I couldn't see the structure underneath the photographs, so I excavated a couple of handfuls of sand at the base, which revealed plywood. When I knocked it, it sounded hollow. The surface was devilishly complicated. Larger sheets of vinyl measuring two metres in length and height. Others were tiny strips the size of a finger. Each sheet joined to the next with surprising precision. An occasional picture missed matching up to its neighbour by a couple of centimetres, a margin of error that seemed ridiculous considering the structure was covered with 150 square metres of vinyl and could be seen from several city blocks away. But it was a different beast at each scale. I had to let go of my conventional notion of a picture as a single photograph. An astonishing number of single images must have been digitally merged. The detail was extraordinary, a mesmerizing assault. The photographs relentlessly recorded every shock, mark, and chip of decay. Bullet holes, 
blunt traumas of the weather, initials faintly carved, rivulets of bird dung, bricks sanded down by time like pencil erasers and so on. Each eyeful was a lavish heaping of the grotesque. Graffiti bred like a virus in Almira, and I felt concern for this picture sculpture, naked in the field. I carefully examined its skin, noting that on the back someone had written their initials on a yellow brick with a pencil. Otherwise it stood untouched. Perhaps the arch didn't need another mark. It brimmed with surplus. When I stood underneath, the structure seemed to disappear. It had drawn me across the lot, absorbing more and more of my field of vision as I approached, until I reached the vacant space underneath and saw only the thinned walls beside me and the view ahead. A trickle of cars passed by on the cinema drief. Trains slid along the north edge of the lot. I tried to imagine what the travellers thought and saw. Was the arch invisible to them? Were they accustomed to it? When their eyes first passed over this aberration, what word had come to mind? I remembered seeing its title in the brochure, Reclamation. So, so this is the point at which we, we meet the sculpture that Kristen made for real in uh, a town called Almira in Holland. Um, perhaps, Kristen, you could start by telling us a bit about Almira, which is a pretty extraordinary place. And itself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Almira is a new city in the Netherlands and it's built on land reclaimed from the sea. Uh, the first settlers moved into the city in 1976, so it's been inhabited for less than 40 years. So when we think of the Netherlands, especially from this part of the world, we think of ye olde Amsterdam. But the reality of the situation is that the Netherlands is a very small country, but one of the most densely populated in the world. So to support the growth of their population, they're building new cities from scratch, and not just new cities, but new land from scratch. Uh, something like 26% of the country is under sea level. So Almir is a land reclamation project on a really massive scale. Uh, they pumped out a body of water, the Zuiderzee, which is part of the no North Sea, to form this new land. And uh, that the city is actually four meters under sea level. So it's 24 feet under sea level. What do they pump it out of? Well, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, well, w the process of pumping out land. Pumping, pumping out water from <laughs> what? Uh, it's a, uh, I, I, I'm not an expert on Dutch land reclamation, but um, <laughs> the, it, it took like 20 years, you know. It's, okay. it's, a, long, it's a long process. And, 20 and years of pumping. <laughs> And yeah, you actually get this like, uh, it's, it's fascinating when, what you actually get when you finally get land with no water, it's this sort of peat bog that um, you can't actually walk on. So then they have to do further, uh, yeah, they, they have to stabilize the land. It's this, it's an incredibly long process. Very Does it feel like you're below sea level? How can you, I mean? You can't actually tell, yeah. <laughs> but what you can see, I mean, the, the incredible thing is this incredibly flat land. You know, so it, it's it's hard to comprehend here, where you're sort of used to variation, but it's it's a perfectly flat land. So uh, the first settlers moved in, in late seventies. Nineteen seventy-six. Nineteen seventy-six. Yeah. yeah. So they sort of they sort of built a like a 
small start of a city, just a few houses and a grocery store and a fire station and, and bust some people in. And they were the, the settlers that arrived on the frontier to live there. And now? Yeah, Is so... It booming? <coughs> well, let's see. Now, less than 40 years later, it's 150,000 people. So it's just it's a massive amount of change in a in a very short time and so it's it's a successful city um and not just that but in the next 15 years it's going to double in population again so it'll be 300,000 by 2030 and and the fourth largest city in the country so and it's a, it's a peculiar city in that it uh it's contradictory it wants to be a city but it's actually made up of 90% uh, single-family dwellings, so it's a suburban city, and uh, it thinks of itself, and it calls itself a leisure city, and it's filled with parks. It's it's almost hard to tell that you're in a city when you're there. There's so many parks kind of around the housing complexes, so it's got these contradictions that it's unsure, like, how those will work out as it grows. Uh, and do the residents like it? I mean, you know, with a lot of new towns, there's a yeah. lot of um, disillusionment. Yeah, so it's, it has a strange uh, kind of uh, connotation in the Netherlands in that if you don't live in Almira, you think it's terrible. And if you live there, you love it. <laughs> so it's <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, it, it, has a, it has a strange place in the... In uh -huh. the yeah. But, um, so this, this sculpture uh, that you uh, installed in Almira, um, is a documentation of an object it's not actually in Almera at all right yeah so the um the arch that um you just described that the narrator in the book is describing and which is yeah also titled reclamation uh yeah they're the, sort of the book and the artwork have the same title that i think that's important the that they're kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. indivisible yeah so the um the arch is from the uh city of metropolis the ghost town of metropolis which is a whole other story of a of a city tell us about metropolis <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so metropolis when back in the day in 1909 um a group of financiers from new york came together and purchased uh 50,000 acres of remote desert land and this is in northeastern nevada and they called themselves the Pacific Reclamation Company. And they had this vision of creating a, a sort of center for agriculture, reclaiming this desert land and creating a center for agriculture. So this is a late gold rush time, but uh, so towns were springing up around like mineral speculation, gold and silver, but this is a really different idea that they were gonna speculate on land and on farming. So this is a, a sort of unique operation and they called their city Metropolis. Uh, obviously with high aspirations <laughs> for yes. what it was going to become. Yes, so they got right to work. <laughs> uh, they cleared out the sagebrush you know, around the, and laid down a one-mile square city plan. And uh, it was really unique for the time in that they poured a huge amount of money into civic infrastructure. Lots of these towns are very impermanent, just sort of shacks. Um, but So they got right to work. They built a three-story hotel and a brick and mortar school building. Uh, uh, they convinced the railroad to build a track out there and they started building a dam and that was sort of center of the project, this massive dam, to uh, store enough water to have 
uh, enough for a year of drought to, to still irrigate this 40,000 acres. Um, you would have thought that the building the dam would be the first thing they'd do in the desert. It was kind of all, s well you, you might have thought they would finish the dam first, but it was sort of all at the same time, yeah. Um, it was this like burst, I mean all this, all that activity happened within the space of a year, so, uh, and at the same, so uh, in conjunction with the installation, <laughs> I republished um, covers from the Metropolis Chronicle, which is the newspaper of the town. Um, let's see. And this is an amazing thing. Can we can we read a bit of it? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So it it was the they, they had this the sort of same problem that all new towns do, which is so you're building, uh, you have to attract people to come live there. So. The town is like reporting on what's happening and trying to build an image of Metropolis and trying to sell land. Um, so I, I like to read the first little bit to sort of tell the, give you the tone of Metropolis in its own words. The headline of which is, Great Future for Metropolis. Yes, extent of present projects and prospective development of vast area attracting men and money. And the, the first line begins solidly substantially and in a way that leaves no room for doubt as to the breadth and permanence of the undertaking. Scores of men are at work at Metropolis and its environs within a radius of many miles in every direction, laying the foundation for the empire being created in the midst of what but a short time since was a vast area of unending sagebrush. So that's that's the great start. Um, so I'm sure like uh, everyone's got a million questions but you know mine f was first like when you went to metropolis oh hang on a minute we're jumping ahead no we can we can go there we need to know what happened when you went to metropolis and what you found <laughs> <laughs> what, what, go, actually going to metropolis yeah. yeah yeah so um well i can tell you that uh despite those beautiful words, uh, Metropolis today <laughs> is once more a vast area of unending sagebrush. Um, and uh, the desert has reclaimed the reclamation project. Uh, and the only thing standing, apart from some foundations and like bits of rusty tools, uh, there is uh, just one piece of a building left and it's the entrance to the former school, uh, which is standing in the shape of an arch. Uh, so the school was completed and then collapsed or was so knocked down? Or yeah, well, what we find out, like, as this, as, as the paper develops, uh, you can actually see in this, uh, the columns start to report on this little lawsuit that uh, comes from the town of Lovelock downstream. And the uh, ranches of Lovelock have got together and uh, uh, sued the Pacific Reclamation Company uh, because they don't actually own the rights to the water that they're diverting for this massive dam project and to irrigate the town. So on the last cover, they announced that uh, unfortunately Lovelock won and, <laughs> <laughs> and the Pacific Reclamation Company is now in receivership, which is another form of bankruptcy. So that's just two years later. And we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of this, of this cover. That's April 1st, 1913. Wow. That's so uh, perfect, uh, 100 <laughs> years later. Um, so you found yourself in Metropolis. Yes, so I did a, re a residency at the Center for Land Use Interpretation uh, and 
Which is where? Which is in Wendover. It's about an hour and a half drive from Metropolis. Um, and there is actually nothing around Metropolis. There's a, a town about 15, 20 minutes away that sort of ekes it out um, uh, with two gas stations um, off of Interstate 80. And then Metropolis is just 14 miles down a dirt road. Uh, so you arrived and uh, found this arch in the middle of the desert. Yes. And you started to photograph it. Started photographing it, yes. But like in a pretty um, uh, obsessive way. Uh, yeah, just just a little bit. Um, with the, the w going there, I knew what I wanted to do with it, and um, so I did. Uh, I basically just photographed every surface of the arch um, as much as was possible, not having scaffolding. Uh, so from the ground? <laughs> so yeah, it was literally, it's literally two stories high. That building, um, it's, it's interesting, those towns, like when they, when they die, the hotel burned down. And uh, if there was a wood structure, people would actually take the wood away from the town because wood was valuable. And that structure is brick and mortar. Um, all the bricks were removed um, and sold and transported to San Francisco. So there's sort of a reason that there's nothing out there anymore. Like materials are actually valuable. So just that masonry would have been no use um, to right. anyone. So yeah. Um, so you, at this time, did you know about Almira? No, I didn't know about Almira. So. Uh, at that point in time, during the residency, I knew that uh, I wanted to remake this work, and I and I went, right. I made this extensive set of photographs of it and started working with the photographs. Um, but my next stop was the Netherlands, <laughs> and and a residency there. Um, and uh, I w did a residency at the Jan van Eyck Academie, which is an incredible place and uh, supportive of productions like this. So I knew it was going to be possible to remake it somewhere in the Netherlands right. I had to find a uh, context that fit uh -huh. with the work and it was I mean the Netherlands is a perfect kind of match to the to this project but it I had to find Almira it's so. it's crazy to me how perfect Almira is for your purposes I yeah, mean yeah. this this story of um uh, of reclamation but also of water you know they kind of mirror mirror narratives in terms of um, uh, reclaiming something from nature but either bringing water in or pushing water out and the failure of Metropolis was because it couldn't access the water and the potential failure of Almira if sea levels continue to rise is that they might have too much water yeah they're kind of amazing towns to uh to like bring into into relationship because there there are these similarities in all these ways that they're both water stories and they're both a frontier and they're both aspiring to be cities, uh -huh. um, but at the same time opposite. In the metropolis was this immediate failure, and Almira is is a ongoing success and. Uh, at, <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, did you feel like you were kind of holding a mirror up to Almira? Uh, well, um, I, I like I resist kind of reading the story too simplistically as a parable. Uh -huh. I think it's more interesting to think about it in terms of like how they are similar and how they are different, and to kind of 
uh, hold them both in mind at once. So. Right, because uh, in the book you you talk about aspects of uh, Almira that are also kind of uh, dystopic or, or go not exactly ghost towns, but kind of failures, architectural failures or ruins. Um, there's a there's a castle that you talk about in yeah. the book. Yeah, so it's worth saying that, like, um, going to write the book, uh, it's from the perspective of a fictional narrator, but there's uh, the, the two cities that are completely factual. I'm not an academic, but I did a lot of research, and there is factually represented, and I didn't have to make anything up <laughs> because the city of Almira is actually strange enough, and <laughs> certainly Metropolis had its own imagination, but um, Almira too has a strange civic imagination, and like you're saying, this it, in one in a very large park in the center of the city, uh, a, a company. <laughs> uh, decided to build a luxury resort um, as a replica castle. I think it was a Swiss castle. And they they sort of plunged a few million euros into this project and then the bubble hit, uh, I think in the early 2000s, I can't remember exactly, and uh, they just abandoned the castle. And you can't actually go in there. So in the middle of this park in Almira, in the city center, there's this area that's a beautifully landscaped park, and there's this area that you can't actually go into. And then in the distance, you see this like ruined castle. It's, it's like the, uh, the dark heart of the shining new city. Yeah. The uh, repressed uh, part of it that's cut off for good. There's also, right in the middle of the center, an island and well, there's a lake, an artificial yeah. lake in the middle of the of the city. Yeah. But in the middle of that lake, there's an island called Utopia Island. Yeah. You could not make And Utopia Island is so like a little piece of sand that you can't even get to. Well, really again, terrible. another kind of wasteland. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, this, this is interesting too because the, the, the field that the sculpture was placed in, installed in, yeah. was a kind of empty lot, what, like a waiting... Um, yeah, yeah. New building or something? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a it was a revolutionary city planning de uh, design in that uh, most cities sort of are conceived of as like a, a single entity, but Almira was designed from the very beginning as these different cores, like five different cores, um, sort of nuclei, and uh, two of them were started right initially. Um, and then two have been kind of left in reserve. And at some point in the future, all of these five cores will grow together and form like one mega city. Um, but in this, in this, so that's a f sort of forward-thinking, uh, flexible way to plan it. But also in the city center, this uh, large area, large lot was left in reserve. And so that's just this vacant lot kind of in the city center. And that's where the work was sited. So you have the- It sounds like there's a lot of emptiness in the middle of this city. You know, it's kind of yeah. unused areas. I mean, you, yeah. you used this phrase when we were talking before that uh, it's a, it's a sculpture of negative space, no, a monument to negative negative space. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought. Obviously, an arch contains a void within it, but also uh, what it represents is a kind of um, absence, right? Absolutely. So. Like sculpturally, like an arch is what it is because of this negative space. Um, but then within that like context, I think the story of Metropolis is a kind of negative space to me. And uh, I mean, very literally, like the sculpture stood at the height of sea level. 
So it sort of indicated that absence. Um, yeah. Was that a way to kind of justify making something really huge? I mean, like, if you if you just set out to build an arch of that scale, everyone would have called you a tyrant. <laughs> but as it is, it's a kind of uh, an anti-arch or an you know anti-monument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's that's the kind of complexity of it as a monument, and that it uh, it was this huge thing and you could see it it was it was just visible uh, along a main street and along on a train line so it was completely in public space and being seen all the time just by people in their daily life um so it had that kind of scale and presence of being a monument but it was completely ephemeral so it was it only lasted for three months and so like that was and that was planned that tension of being a monument but not in the in the book, the uh, the character, uh, the protagonist that I just read, wonders what people would be thinking of this object that has no explanation, no context. Um, did you get any idea of what people's response to it was? Yeah, it was cool. Like <laughs> making it, that people would just come over and be like, "What's that thing? What are you doing?" And uh, it, actually, one lady brought us coke. That was cool. Like the drugs? No, no, just, oh, just drinks. Cola. Soft drinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it like a, a really hot day. It's a park. This. <laughs> no, it was, it's true. It's strange. Strange things happen in the park, and so it was. It was. Uh, I mean, it was really like uh, completely exposed. There was nothing around it. It was really weird to make something in that kind of public space, mm -hmm. and to just like let it be out there, you know, with no protection. Didn't know what was going to happen to it. But. And and did you um, distribute the the Metropolis Chronicle? Yeah, so the the Chronicle was distributed in the uh, in the Museum de Pavilions, which the work was made with, uh, the institution that it was made with, and also uh, distributed around Nevada. So, um, and actually, in the book, you you the the protagonist goes to the museum and talks about being handed these yeah. objects. Yeah. It's 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 really funny the way um, Kristen's um, structured this this book because it is um, at once a a piece of fiction, but also uh, make as Kristen already said makes as little up as as um, as is possible. So um, although the protagonist who who whose eyes we're looking through throughout the book. Um, has a made-up family. Um, all the places she goes to are absolutely real, and uh, the uh, experience she has of this sculpture mm. is pretty um, uh, almost like photographic. You know, when I when I read that passage earlier, you uh, get a sense of how um, uh, assiduous Christian's uh, writing is when she's describing this thing. And we talked um, earlier about this kind of like equalizing gaze that mm. uh, this protagonist has. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Is that like a, a, a photographic thing or a digital thing, you know, mm. in, in, in your mind? Mm, well, just like I'll, I'll back up a little bit in that like the, the kind of point in like writing, the, writing this account and, and doing the book this way from the fictional narrator's perspective is to like create a, like imagine a perspective um, and to set it within that context, like, so, and and then to see what, 
what a narrator, like what the subjective experience of an artwork is within that context. Right. So this narrator is like not from the art world or doesn't have that, it's just a sort of interest in this thing that she sees and finds out more about. And um, she's kind of like using her daily life to inform what she learns about the artwork and and vice versa. Like this strange story about the artwork to kind of make a little bit different sense of her daily life. So it's sort of going both ways. And the story is told a lot through architecture in, in the architecture she see, that she sees in Almira right. and then this, you know, through this work. And then also through these sort of uh, little events that she witnesses during the day, these sort of little performances that you sort of see around the city. And... Uh, sort of um, yeah. anecdotes about uh, uh, things as well uh, this make it seem very um, very current you know these uh, Kristen writes about like certain like internet memes and like yeah. showing the protagonist shows her niece and nephew uh, video of their grandparents is it arriving yeah. in 1967 yeah and I'm assuming that that YouTube yeah, clip exists cool. yeah 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 um, but so, so there's this interesting thing about time as well, you know, because um, going back to what I was saying initially about, you know, documentation, uh, I'm very aware as somebody who used to take photographs of artworks on slide film, how, how rapidly documentation ages, you know, and now uh, all the students have like 5D cameras and, and, and like can take um, incredibly uh, high res um, images of their artwork. But um, I kind of feel like even that will age very rapidly. And what's interesting about this text is that text, or, uh, even fiction, doesn't age in, the, in quite the same way. Like the, the, the subject will, but yeah. um, you'll be able to you know, reuse this text. There's It'll something, remain. Something amazing about when you read a first person or like account, you just sort of like imagine it's sort of present. <laughs> well, yeah, and yeah. it's obviously like comes out of this sort of research that you do a lot in your work, right? Like yeah, but it is, you know, it is there, like it's, it is very specifically a document and like everything, even the sort of technology things that are referenced in it, like texting and the particular internet memes and um, a couple of the things are, they're very much about like that moment of 2008 and it's, so it is meant to kind of date in a, right. you know, it, I hope it feels fresh, but it's meant to be of that time. Uh -huh. Yeah. Although the, uh, arguably, the documentation of the object, the sculpture itself, will be timeless. Well, it's funny how, like, anything, anything that you do in that city is almost immediately dated, just because uh, the city's changing so rapidly. So to, the, the pictures will be different. Like, if I go, every time I go back there, I'm like, wow, <laughs> there's giant new buildings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the, it, it, it's, a, it's a funny place to make a work, because it is, it's, it's changing and uh, it's changing so rapidly you you can't predict it's almost like the future is in is another negative space like that vacant lot is going to be filled uh -huh. you know so that documentation is is destined to be very dated in that way do you feel like uh the inhabitants of this forward-looking new city have a different relationship to the future uh than you or i might 
I mean, there's this like this double thing, right? That their, that their city is based on uh, on newness and that optimism about the, the future, but also uh, it's very likely that if sea levels do continue to rise, they'll have a hard time not, you know, keeping the sea back. And, and in a hundred years' time, Almira could very well be underwater as well. Uh, I I can't speak for uh, what the perspective is there, and it was really hard for me to. Uh, to really like uh, get to know people there, like uh -huh. I had, I did have a lot of interactions, but like it was hard to get conversations like that going. Uh -huh. So I can't really say this to it. Uh, well, maybe the book, the f the sort of fictional um, account of this protagonist experience is a way of inhabiting that impossible space for you. Yeah, well, the, like the work is actually so much about displacement and a kind of like lack of communication, or uh -huh. yeah, so that like it's a really it's a kind of radical displacement to kind of uproot something from uh, the west, this ghost town, and plant it in uh, a Dutch city. So, before we um, start for questions, I'd just like to point out one of my favorite parts about the book. At the, at the very end, the protagonist is uh, walking through the field and the sculpture is gone and she wonders kind of if it was all a dream and she finds, she looks down and finds a scrap of uh, vinyl on the ground uh, left behind presumably when they removed the sculpture and um, it's on the vinyl, it's printed the bricks, um, life-size bricks and uh, and in a sense, that's what we have on the cover. This whole book is yeah, like yeah, it is exactly uh, <laughs> is, is a scrap of um, uh, of this original sculpture. Yeah. So this like uh, this is actually um, a photograph of a piece of vinyl from the um, leftover from the work. So it is like one to one. That is actually a one to one photograph of a brick from Metropolis and from the installation. So it sort of brings some the three things together doesn't get any realer than this. <laughs> Has anyone got any questions uh, for Kristen? Um, I'm aware also that uh, none of you have probably looked in the book as yet, or very few of you have, and uh, we've kept pictures of this sculpture from you. Um, that was a kind of deliberate thing. I, I like the idea that this is a, you know, an art project, a visual, a visual art project that's wound up just as words. But um, the, there are images in the book, and I don't know, perhaps we should pass them yeah, out, pass, or, or pass people around. come up afterwards and have a closer look. Um, it's a beautifully designed thing. Um, does anyone have any questions? Sure. Shoot. Yeah. Um, I think my question is about perspective. But the thing that seems really interesting to me is the perspective that you have as the artist creating this work and going, it seems like a lot of that and then as a writer writing this, I mean, I find it hard to imagine what that was like. Like, did you have to sort of pretend to know less about the work? Like, what was it like to create that other perspective once you had mm. so fully examined or, you know, Thank you. That's a great question, and it was really painful. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because uh, it's funny how when like uh, like to to make an artwork, you're kind of inside the artwork, and you have this like hazy network of ideas, and and you can sort of just uh, like exist in this somewhat indeterminate space and make a thing, and uh, and you don't have to make the ideas so uh, concrete or like. So it was a very different thing to, and not only that, but it was a really different thing just beyond writing something down to to imagine what someone who hadn't experienced it would see. Um, but it was it was really fun to do that. So. Yeah, uh, it took a little time to develop, like this final form, and uh, like after the work, I did know I wanted to make a catalog from it because it was there's a lot of like rich ideas around it, and uh, the installation was just this thing that one one had an experience of, but might not have known the context around it. So to like draw that together, and because also the artwork was gone, um, and then just thinking about the best way to do that, like to to imagine it in that the uh, from a fictional narrator's standpoint. Um, and then there's something, it was, it, I think it's, it was such a visual work, and to describe it in text was as a, as a sort of opposition, w actually became a really interesting kind of project, and it became a work of its own, so. Yeah. It's interesting too because both Metropolis and Almira kind of rely on certain fictions. You know, like this thing right here is a fiction. You know, Great Future. They're selling the story of this place before it's happened, and with Almira, to the same to an extent as well. You know, naming yeah. an island Utopia Island is asking for trouble, right? <laughs> but um, you know, like, and you talk about the brochures for Almira and stuff yeah. as well. They're yeah. different, obviously, different kinds of fictions, but it is all sort of storytelling yeah I, that that was like the fascinating thing to like to sort of discover the way that cities tell stories about themselves but then also that real people live there and are having all their own stories like become blended with this and so the narrator is sort of having her own story unfold and i mean even in this it's it's really it's half propaganda and half document of a community so they'll be like yeah. yeah. Well, the same with the uh, YouTube clip of the uh, the pioneers in in Almera in 1976. Yeah. I mean, it's actual documentary um, information, but I guess it's like edited in such a way to make them look like they're setting foot on the moon or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Clutching uh, worldly possessions. Anyone else? Um, uh, Well, I um, I really don't I don't know. It was, it's it's a sort of this is a sort of like uh, I hesitate to make any kind of judgment and even a judgment on Metropolis because it was it was actually this very civic project and and uh, forward thinking in some ways and they cared for the people who lived there you know in in some ways. <laughs> um, 
so I can't make any judgments, but I, I just find it fascinating the way that um, whatever, the ar whatever the architecture is, when people inhabit it, interesting things happen, and, and those are the stories that sort of come out in the book. But. I mean, also, this thing here is a fiction. This is like uh, the... Let's have a look at the um, structure. You got a picture of the original structure. That you know, th this was built originally in 1911. 19, yeah, 1911, 1911 to look like a much older structure. You know, it, it sort of generically classical. Yeah, yeah. a kind of cl a, a, a serious yeah. building, and it's you know like it's very serious building. It's meant to look like stone when actually it's just uh, masonry um, or you know a pl plaster work and stuff. So. There's lots of ways that you know this, this civilization is structured around um, make believes because that's kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, comfortable first, for everyone. The to first part of Almira um, was modeled on Amsterdam. It's a replica of Amsterdam. Wow. Yeah. Which is just across the water. Yeah, just across the water. <laughs> huh. I don't think there's 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 any judgment about the make believe. I th I I I, th I think the point is that it's like an essential part of uh, of of a community or, or of any kind of um, civilization. It's kind right? of the problem of a frontier, and it's starting with nothing. You have to like to imagine something. You you begin with like existing sources. Actually, the street names in Almira are really strange. There's a whole section of the city that's just named after musicians. Actually, the section behind this structure was named after comedians. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, it's hilarious to me that you know the whole of the U.S. is named after uh, British mm -hmm. and uh, European places, yeah. uh, often bearing no re relationship to the, uh, the original. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like to inhabit the void, you kind of have to like frame it in a way that's familiar or yeah, uh, yeah. that makes existing sense. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah, it was used. Yeah, it was used for. Um, it was used for school and also as like a community room. They would like have dances and all kinds of community functions in there. Yeah. It actually it actually kind of lasted the longest because yeah. 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 It did. Yep. Well, I it, like the the ideas of documentary photography were really like formative for me, and that 
that was kind of some of my first experiences of art were from documentary photography and I kind of I kind of came from that background and so the actual photographic process um, to make the sculpture kind of came from a documentary photography um, like impulse and and then to do this research also I, I really think of Walker Evans and the Farm Security Administration projects and the way that they combined artwork and uh, photography and, and a social and architectural documentation um, and then the book I mean like art books <laughs> are, are sort of incredible like way of making objects and bringing all that together so yeah it runs through everything I uh, think it's time to go for a drink yeah. down the road. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. And thank you, Kristen. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.